It's good to be back this morning. As you may have known or recognized, we were out of town last week. And um, one of the things that uh, was impressed upon me is that when time is short, things get urgent. And they get quite simplified. Uh, there's something about the brevity of time that in- introduces birth, both a uh, sense of urgency and uh, simplicity to the equation of life. Um, last week I discovered how true that statement is. And, um, time has been defined as a stretch of duration in which things happen. I had one of those stretches of duration. And uh, last Thursday I flew back to meet my family who are uh, ahead of me in Pennsylvania. I flew on Thursday, got in Thursday night. On Friday we had the day to visit uh, everyone that we had to visit. On Saturday we drove five hours to Maryland to my brother-in-law and my sister's house. On uh, Sunday, uh, we had a uh, dedication, a child dedication. It was my privilege to be able to dedicate my new nephew. Um, My sister and her husband had two girls, and then they had a little boy. And that was at the Annapolis Academy, where he went to school several years ago. At that same time, we had not only the baby dedication, but we had a... His parents were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, so we had a vow renewal. And at the same place, uh, there was a memorial for my uh, brother-in-law's brother who was killed and the service um, in a tragic uh, airplane collision on a training, ra- on a training mission, and uh, that was at the same time. So we took care of all of those things at once, and uh, it was 103 degrees and 90% humidity as we stood out kind of under a tent, sort of, and, uh, and took care of business there. Uh, the next day, we drove to friends of ours who uh, used to play for the Rams that now play for the Baltimore Ravens, and they live out in the country. So we had to take care of uh, some things by visiting them, and uh, they live out in a big, big house out in the middle of nowhere, cornfields all over the place. It's horse country, and they got a horse, and so it's a typical thing where you want to do something on vacation that you never do any other time in the normal course of, of your lifetime. And uh, so they wanted us to go out and go horseback riding. So uh, they said, "Well, we'll take it slow at first. And so they took us out and. You know, we're not horse people, and, uh, you know, just horses in the 55 freeway, they don't seem to go together, and uh, so it might have something to do with the area we live in. But anyway, we're not really horse people, but they want to take it slow, and they took us out, and so I got up on the horse okay, and, and uh, everything seemed to be pretty good, and the horse started out nice and slow, so, you know, I'm a cocky kind of guy, and I took my hands off, you know, and I, hey, hi-ho, silver, and the next thing I knew, I don't know exactly what happened, but I slipped, and I think I startled the horse, and as I slipped, the horse got startled, and the horse started running around in circles, and I slipped, and I'm hanging off by the stirrups, and I'm, I'm dangling from the stirrups, and I'm screaming for my life, my life's flashing before my eyes, and I'm thinking, what could I have done differently than what I just did, and, and, uh, and I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I'm yelling for help, and just when I think that, that the end is near, man, that guy from the Kmart came running out and pulled the plug in that machine. <sighs> I was so grateful to see him. So, so needless to say, we started out slow. We never made it onto the big horse. Uh, but the, the point is, on a much more serious note, uh, it was a short trip, but I think I made the most of the time that I had. And, uh, and I was thinking, you know, our life here on earth is a short trip. It really is. And uh, we're encouraged to make the most of the time or this stretch of duration in which things happen. But the question that I had as I was spending time back there was, there are so many opportunities to do things, and there's such a limited resource available. In this case, it was time. How do you use that time effectively? And can we substitute or confuse busyness for effectiveness? Because we're busy, does that mean we're effective doing the things that God has called us to do? Or is there a great difference between the two? We need to ask ourselves some tough questions about the use of the time that God has given us. Just because I'm busy doesn't mean necessarily that I'm effectively using the time that God has given us. And God gives us some great instruction as to how he wants us to use this time, this stretch of duration in which things are supposed to happen. And uh, he gives us an answer for that in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 in verses 7 through 11. Peter helps us answer those questions as he gives us what one would call hope beyond extremism. And I'll explain that in a minute. I was going to entitle this Hope Beyond Being a Wacko, um, but I I know some of you could have been offended by that title. 
and especially those who, who you may think of sending the tape to. So we, we, we'll just keep it at this for right now. But hope beyond extremism. And if you take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, look at the, the words found in verses 7 through 11. That will be the context of what we're going to look at in our time together. We read, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. And whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the key to understanding this particular phrase is found in the first words that we read. It says that the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. The key to understanding everything that Peter and God wants us to understand about what to do with this stretch of duration that in which things happen called time is found in that statement. And we know that because we see the connective phrase or the connective word, therefore. It's, it's kind of this way. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, now that should give us the, uh, the motivation that we need to do the things that he's going to tell us about that's to follow in this passage. The end of all things is at hand. Now the question is, what does that mean, the end of all things is at hand? And we need to take a look at something. The end draws near. Turn back uh, a book to the book of James. James chapter 5, 7 through 8, will give us some insight as to what this phrase is referring to. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, we read these words. It says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until what? The coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for what? The coming of the Lord is at hand. As he relates to how we should live in light of the return of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us to be patient, knowing that Jesus is coming again, the Bible says that the end of all things is at hand, the end draws near, the coming of the Lord is at hand. All of these phrases indicate the same thought, and the thought that's found in 1 John 2.18, for example, calls it, we are in the last hour, or that last duration of time in which things happen. Revelation 22, verses 7, 12, and 20, Jesus himself says this, Behold, I come quickly. And the response to that always was, Amen, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so as we look at this and we turn back to 1 Peter again, we begin to understand that the point of this passage is very simple, and that is this. The end is near. The end of what? The end of this period of time between the time that Jesus was here and he left and went into heaven till the time that he will return again to this earth. And the Bible says the end of that time is drawing near. So the point is very simple. That's this. Jesus is coming again. Soon. If it was soon for them, 1900 years ago, how much sooner is it for us? The point that he's making is this. Live your life in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again soon. Now, I don't know about you, but that truth should greatly influence how we live our lives in this stretch of duration in which things should happen that we call time. It should affect the way we live today. And if you live in light of Jesus' return each day of your life, it will do wonders for your perspective. It changes the way you think and see everything. And uh, Peter understood that and he recognized this urgency and the urgency and the simplicity of this time that we have that's available. You know, the more I read about Peter and the more I study Peter's life, the more I like him. Because I can relate to him. I can identify with him. He was practical. Prior to following Jesus, his life consisted of very tangible, practical things. Boats, nets, fishing, supporting a family, going to work, 
It was very practical, the things that he did. He was a man's man. Now, when Jesus said, follow me, and Peter followed him, guess what he took along with him? His personality, his traits, who he was, what made him tick. And when he followed Jesus, he followed Jesus the same way he did everything else. He was very practical. His life consisted of very simple things. He broke it down into things that we all could understand, and that's why I love it. God uses his life over and over again to help us to identify what character traits were true of his life and should be true of our life, what character traits were true of his life and shouldn't be true of our life. And he makes it very simple to follow and to understand. He wasn't scholarly, he wasn't sophisticated. And Peter had little, I guess, little interest in sitting around having theological debates. I can relate to that. Life wasn't meant to be talked about because that was a waste of time to Peter. If something needed to be done, Peter, I'm sure, didn't sit down and say, let's form a committee. Let's talk about it until the, the, uh, the need disappears. If we talk about it long enough, maybe we won't have to do anything about it. Peter wasn't like that. If something needed to be done, he just did it. Isn't that refreshing? He just did it. That's why I think I like him. He didn't study all the alternatives. He didn't think about it to death. He didn't dwell on things. He just did it. I like that. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. The end draws near. Jesus is coming soon. Therefore, he shares four commands that he wants us to obey. Isn't that simple? Simple and to the point. Simple, a sense of urgency, a sense of simplicity, and I like that because we got too much theological gobbledygook that's being promoted in our culture today. We talk about things to death and very little gets done. And God just says, you know what? Jesus is coming soon. Therefore, here's what I want you to do. doesn't get much simpler than that. And I don't, I mean, I would hope this is true, but I think this is on a, on a shelf that every one of us here that are listening to this is going to be able to take something home with us and get busy doing what God wants us to do. And I like that. So he gives us four commands to obey. You want to see the first one? It's this. Okay, four commands to obey. Jesus is coming soon. What am I supposed to do with my life? Well, the first thing I do with my life is this. I'm going to use good judgment, and I'm going to keep cool. I'm going to use good judgment, I'm going to keep cool. I like that. Look what he says. He says, The end of all things at hand, therefore, what? Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Sound judgment. He says, in, in this NIV translation, it says clear-minded. Others say sound judgment or sound-minded. And it is uh, best understood in the light of an incident that I'm sure that Peter remembered because he was there in person. If you turn back to the Gospel of Mark, look at chapter 5, and I'll give you an example of what it means to be sound of, of mind or clear-minded and have sound judgment. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. It's a great story of a person who wasn't demonstrating sound judgment. In Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we read these words. It says, And then, and they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of Gerasenes, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met Jesus. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with the chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains, he had been, the, the, the chains that they had been torn apart by him and the shackles were broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So Jesus goes to this particular countryside and out comes from the tombstones or from the graveyard this man who has an unclean spirit, and the people of the town used to try to chain him up so that they would keep him from running wild in the town, and they couldn't even chain him up anymore because the chains wouldn't hold this man. And so he comes running to Jesus and, and constantly night and day among the tombs and in the mountains he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. Could you imagine? You think you got a bad neighbor. <laughs> night and day the guy is beating himself with stones because of these spirits that have inhabited his body and he's gashing himself with stones. In the middle of the night you hear, Oh! Oh! Oh, that one hurt! Oh! And he's screaming and yelling. And these people are getting sick and tired of it. So they're thinking, hey, let's form a committee. <laughs> what are we going to do about this guy? I know what we'll do. We'll chain him up. 
We'll chain him up and we'll take him out to the tombstone because he's not going to bother them. We'll chain him up, we'll put him there. And they chained him up, they put him there, and he kept breaking the chains and he kept running around the town. Oh, no, he's back. So in seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. Now crying out loud with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was asking and saying, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now a legion in, an ar- in a Roman army was a unit of 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. It was the elite group of the Roman army. And so these demons that have inhabited this man's body cry out, My name is Legion! 3,000 to 6,000 demons have in- inhabited this man's body. It says, And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out of the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country, and the people came to see what was going on. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, here it is, in his right mind, the very man who had the legion and they became frightened. There's the same term about being of sound mind or using sound judgment. The extreme or the opposite was what this man's life was like before he was uh, eliminated of this demon possession. He was a man who was scattered. He was a man who was controlled by evil. He was a man who was not obviously focused on the things of God. There was no amount of discernment there. He was a man who was under the influence of Satan in the kingdom of darkness. And he was a man that was chaotic in the things that he did. And the opposite of that is exactly the word that we find here, that we are not to be extremists from the sense of being wackos as Christians in this time that God's given us on earth, but we are to be people of clear mind and sound judgment. And it goes on to say this, they were frightened by what they saw. Because they've been trying to chain this guy up for a long time and they haven't been able to do it. And all of a sudden Jesus appears on the scene and in a word casts out these demons. They're frightened by this. But what also is interesting as we go through this and it really gives me some comfort is this. God is in control. I do not have to be fanatical. I do not have to be an extremist. I do not have to take things in my own hand because God is in control. And when God is in control of the situation, this man was of sound mind, clear mind, and sound judgment. But when God was not in control of the situation, there was nothing but chaos in this man's life because of this possession that he had been going through. And so those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, they began to entreat Jesus to depart from their region. They were afraid of him. It says, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating Jesus, begging him that he could go with him. And Jesus said, you know, no, you can't go, but go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim at Decapolis when great things Jesus, what great things Jesus had done, and everyone marveled. Isn't that fascinating? See, when we are not radical extremists, and we allow God to work through our life, people around us will marvel at what God is doing in our life. He was of sound judgment, and the, and the second thing was, he was also self-controlled. He was controlled. Sober spirit, the opposite of living in a frenzy. So many of us are, as Christians are moving 190 miles an hour and we're bouncing all over the place from one place to the next to the next to the next, and we're driving down in the fast lane of life, but we're not accomplishing anything. We're not accomplishing anything of eternal significance. I thought about that when we were gone. I only had a short period of time to do some things, but you know what? I accomplished more of eternal significance in the time that we were together because the time that we had focused on the Lord and the things of God. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? Let me just give you an example of how Christians can go to an extreme. 
Jesus is coming soon, so I'm going to quit my job. Hey, there are people who have done that. There are people who have done it. Jesus is coming soon. Sell everything. Quit your job. We'll hand out the white robes as we take your money. We'll hand out the white robes. You give us your money and all your assets and all your goods. And then you go sit on a hillside somewhere and you can be on the first watch. Don't see him yet. You see him yet? I don't see him yet. I don't know about this, but the longer I sit up here and I look for him, I think we've been taken. I don't know, but that's what happens. Give you another example of extremism. So some of you haven't done that yet. That's good. <laughs> and the ones that have aren't here. <laughs> so if you see them, stop by and, and uh, share some things with them. But here's another example. A person believes in Jesus Christ. Everything else in life pales in comparison. I'll guarantee you it does. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believe what God says, that He is His provision for my problem called sin. When I believed in Him and put my faith and trust in Him, and the Bible said I become a child of God to those who believe in His name, that when I received Christ, that I was a new creature, old things passed away, all things became new. You know what happened in my life? Everything else paled in comparison. I wasn't interested in my job. I wasn't interested in a career. I wasn't interested in making money. I wasn't interested in possessions or accumulating material things. Everything else paled in comparison. And the first trip we ever made back east to visit relatives after I became a Christian, I was fired up. The people we visited weren't. You know what I'm saying? Been there? Done that? Okay, here's how it works. So I'm meeting with an uncle of mine, the only uncle that I have, the closest relative I have. He used to take me hunting and fishing and drinking, and he was such a cool guy. And uh, every kid wants an uncle like that, right? Until you realize that maybe that wasn't exactly the best thing that we could have been doing. But anyway, so I'm meeting with him. And Linda's there, and the kids are there, and we're meeting, and we're talking. And I was like, oh, man, i got to tell you what happened. Oh, man, this is the greatest thing ever happened to me. Let me tell you what happened. Oh, you know what? Hey, I accepted Jesus Christ into my life. Oh, man, and everything else in life. I mean, I got a peace and a contentment and a joy and all the things I've ever been looking for. Man, I'm telling you. And he sat there looking at me like this. And the next thing he was going like this. He's a man. And then he was freaking out. He was like looking around. I said, what are you looking for? He goes, I'm waiting for all the angels to come swooping on in. And then I started to get the, the point. And the point was that, you know what, he wasn't really interested at that time in making this discussion. And I started to realize, you know, maybe that wasn't the best approach. Now, understand what I'm saying here. I believe that God wants us to tell people about Jesus. But I also believe that there is a way to do it that people will be much more receptive to hear what we have to say. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and I guarantee you this. If you slack off in your job because you became a Christian, I, I, let me tell you something what I learned about professional athletes and particularly coaches, and that's this. Most coaches are scared to death when a man gives his life to Jesus Christ because their attitude about Christians is that they're not intense, they're not professional, and they won't get after getting the job done that needs to be done. That's their stereotype of a Christian. In fact, I don't know where this is going, but I just saw an interview on ESPN uh, with Deion Sanders. I don't know where this is going. I don't know anything about it, so please don't. I, I don't know much about the background. But what I do know is what I heard. And what I heard him say was that he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And the question that was asked, which I want to dwell on at this point because I don't know enough about the rest of the story, but it's this. But, but, the, but the question the interviewer said is this. Now, can you still be an intense athlete and a born-again Christian. See? You see what the stereotype is here? And you know why? Because for years it's true. The worst employees sometimes are Christians. The ones who rebel against authority are Christians. The ones who slack off in their job are Christians. Because everything pales in comparison to the return of Jesus Christ, therefore I'm not interested and excited about anything. And that is not good judgment. That is not clear-mindedness. That is not a sober spirit. God says, yes, everything pales in comparison. But in the meantime, you've got a job to do. 
Do it and do it well. Every one of us should be the best at whatever it is that we're doing. Where you're working, you should be the best employee. There should be nothing negative ever said about you. You're on time. You're punctual. You're, you're, you are in responsive to authority. You do what you're told. And even when you're not told to do something, you do it anyway because you see it and they don't see it, but you do it anyway. You're the best at what you do. You're the best athlete on your team. you got the best attitude of anybody else. You're the hardest worker. You're the best student. You're the best. God's people should be the best. Amen. Don't you think so? Amen. I think so. And that's the way we should live our life. And that's clear-mindedness. That's, clear that's, that's sound judgment. And it gives us an audience so that people will listen to the things that we have to say about Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming soon. But you know what? Let's simplify things and let's get right down to business. We should be the best at what we do while we're here doing it. The point of the passage is Jesus is coming soon. The other point of the passage is this. You know what? We don't need to sit around debating when that's going to be. I think the worst thing that happens sometimes to people is they go to school of higher learning in the field of religion. So they can sit around and debate when Jesus is coming. Now, I don't know what this means in the original Greek, but would you check into this with me for a moment in the book of Acts chapter 1? See what we come away with. Acts chapter 1. We read these words. And so, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's saying, hey, is this the coming of God's kingdom? Hey, is Jesus coming back? When's he coming back? What's going on? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and the cloud received them out of their sight. They were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him and they said this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something about last words that leave a lasting impression in my mind. And I'll give you an example of how this works. Have you ever, as a parent, when you're going out, said to your children, listen, I want you to know, no one over. No one can come here. Do not be on the phone. You go away. You come back. Because you try to call, and before there was call waiting, there was a busy signal. And you say, wasn't the last thing I told you not to be on the phone? There is something about last words that should make an impression. Jesus says this in his parting shot. It is not for you to worry about when I am coming back. Don't sit around, don't debate it, don't worry about it, don't set dates. What you are to be doing, instead of discussing when I'm coming back, is you should be getting busy doing what I've called you to do. That is, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus' last words before he went to heaven. What do you think that means in the original language? It means what he said. That's what we should be doing. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Listen to what Warren Worsby writes, and I love this. He says, Early in my ministry, I gave a message on prophecy that sought to explain everything. I have since filed that outline away and will probably never look at it except when I need to be humbled. A pastor friend who suffered through my message said to me after the service, Brother, you must be on the planning committee for the return of Christ. I got his point, but he made it even more pertinent when he said this quietly. I've moved from the program committee to the welcoming committee. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't study prophecy or that we become timid about sharing our interpretations. What I am suggesting is we not allow ourselves to get out of balance because of an abuse of prophecy. There is practical application to the prophetic scriptures. Peter's emphasis on hope and glory of God ought to encourage us to be faithful today in whatever work God has given us to do. Let's get busy doing what God 
has given us to do. And that is to be of sound judgment, to be of sober spirit, to be clear-minded for the purposes around us about the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And we will gain access to them as an audience by being the best that we can be. I'll guarantee you when a guy's leading his team in home runs and RBIs and he's a Christian, people are going to listen to what he has to say. And even if he's not leading his team, but he's hustling, he's playing hard, he's doing everything he's supposed to be doing, and sometimes he goes in a slump, they're still going to listen to what he has to say. Because they want to see how he responds to adversity as a Christian. They want to see how he responds to prosperity as a Christian. They want to know what this Christian life is all about. And I'll, give you, and I'll tell you this. If you see somebody who's, who's out of control, frenzied, radical, an extremist, I'll guarantee you that you're going to find a person that's not spending much time praying. I like what I read on the plane not too long ago. It said, I think it was uh, Spurgeon who said this. The busier my day, the more I needed to find time to pray. If I had 12 hours of work to do that day, he said, I knew that I needed to spend at least the first two hours in prayer so I can get it all done. That's powerful stuff. I guarantee you, if you see a person who's an extremist that's whacked out, out of control, they're not spending any time praying. We need to stop and we need to pray. The second thing we need to do is this. We need to keep fervent in our love for one another. Keep fervent in our love for one another. Above all, above everything else that God wants us to do in this stretch of duration in which things happen called time, He wants us to be fervent in our love for one another. Above everything else, love each other deeply. The word fervent means this. My daughter got a letter from a friend of hers who lives in Ohio and she was a, a, a gal who was running the hurdles for the first time. Well, actually it wasn't the first time. She had run the hurdles all season long and had never won. And uh, she had got to the point where she was disgusted and wanted to do everything that she could to win. The word fervent reminds me of the letter and the context in which she wrote this. As I was coming toward the finish line, the thing that I knew that I hadn't been doing well was stretching forward to hit the line. And so in her fervent desire to cross the line, she stretched forward and dove forward. And unfortunately, in her case, she fell on her face. But, but, but the, uh, and, and it loses a little bit in the illustration at that point. But... But the worst thing that happened to her, she skinned her nose and her knees, right? Okay, big deal. But what God is saying is this. The word that's used here of being fervent in our love for one another is stretching ourselves to the point of loving other people even when it's not the easiest thing to do. He's saying stretch yourself. A high jumper stretches himself as he goes over the bar. A pole vaulter stretches himself as he goes over the bar. A long jumper stretches forward and you can see him at the last second trying to get more distance out of it, trying to get everything that they can. The athletic word that's used is fervent or stretch forward. Now he's using it in the context of love. He's saying, hey, I want you to keep on stretching out as much as you can to love people around you. And it's very important in days of persecution, which they were about to endure. It's important that God's people would, would, would embrace one another and encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the own assembling together as a habit of some, but all the more is what? We see that day drawing near. In light of Jesus coming back, we should be busy loving one another instead of criticizing and condemning one another. And what he's doing, what I love about what he's saying is this. He's saying, hey, you know what? You are already doing that. I just want to encourage you to keep on doing it. And I was thinking as I was, as I was writing this and reading this and praying about this, and I thought, you know what? That's something that I need to condemn you people for doing. And I give you, let me just be, be nice about this for a second, because uh, what I want to try to say is something positive, so don't take it out of context. But for many years, Kindred Fellowship has been slammed by people around this campus for being too big, for being another church, for being whatever it is, and I don't even know what all the things are. But one of the things that's interesting about that is that you people have continued to love people even that have criticized and slammed us and didn't really know what was going on. And I would hope that, as you know me, that I have continued to do the same, is to love people who don't necessarily like me. And you know why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And it's really important that we understand what Peter is saying in the, in the, in the exhortation that God is giving us. And that is that I want whoever comes here, whether they're people that like us, don't like us, like you, don't like you, or people that don't even know you or anything about anything, I want them to walk in here 
and sense that they're loved. I want them to be greeted with the sense that, you know what? We don't know you, but we love you. And we want to get to know you. I want every small group leader to have people in their group that sense when I'm with these people, I feel loved. Even when I do things that I shouldn't do and even when I say things that I shouldn't say and even when I make mistakes and I have my faults, they still stretch out to love me. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Can I make a suggestion? And let's be the leaders in this. Let us stop criticizing one another. People can vote with their feet. If you don't like this class, then you've got other places to go. If you don't like me, there are other teachers to go hear the Word of God preached. I'd like to know why you don't like me, because if I've done something wrong, I need to make that right, if I can. Uh, but on the other hand, you know what? People can choose to go where they'd like to go. If people don't like a church, then go to another church where they can have their needs met and also meet the needs of those who are there. We don't need to be people who undermine God's program by continually biting each other and stabbing each other in the back. We need to be people who are people of love for one another and let us let our love fervently stretch out to everyone. That's as simple as it gets. And you know what? I, I meet people all the time who have chosen to go to another class or chosen just to go to a service and they hide from me as if somehow they've slighted me. I, I don't feel that way at all. And I make sure they know it. I say hi to them, I greet them, I hug them if appropriate, and I, and I love them. I mean, this isn't about choosing sides, and it's not about anything other than going where you feel God wants you to go and having your needs met in the way that God can meet them and having you be involved in an area where you can meet the needs of those around you. That's it. That's what we should be doing in light of Jesus' return sitting around criticizing and condemning one another and stabbing each other in the back and letting Satan divide God's people so that we'll be ineffective to fight the real foe and the real battle that's out there? We are not the enemy. You are not the enemy. The person sitting next to you is not our enemy. Psalm 133 says, Hey, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when the world looks upon Christians, Christian brotherhood and Jesus said they will know you are Christians. How? By your love for one another. Is that what people would say if they saw you or me and they heard the things that we speak of and of whom we speak? Mahatma Gandhi said this, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Christian love's not blind, but it sees and accepts the faults of others, and it's too busy to criticize because it's moving forward, stretching out to love others. Love covers a multitude of sins, but hatred stirs up strife. Number three, what else are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be hospitable to one another. We're supposed to be hospitable to one another. Hospitality is both commanded and commended all throughout the Bible. It's without question the most visible expression of a changed heart. Most of us, before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, are, were very selfish people. Everything we did, we did to please ourselves. One of the most visible expressions of a changed heart is the fact that now we are there to serve other people. We open our homes without grumbling. There's two ways to be hospitable. Number one, with grumbling. Number two, without grumbling. Now, with grumbling, you don't have to worry about being hospitable very long. Have you ever been in someone's house that you just know they hate having you there? It's like, you know, all the, the gates of hell unloaded on that household before you showed up. It's like they got in a big old fight because you're coming over, and the reason you're coming over is because he invited you over and she didn't know anything about it until you said, hey, guess who's coming for dinner tonight? You know, and it's like, ah, or it's people that you want over that she didn't want over or she wants over that you don't want over and you don't have anything in common with them, but she has something in common with her, but it's good enough to all to get together as couples and you think the guy doesn't even like ESPN or ESPN2 and, and, you know, and he likes stuff that you don't like and what are you going to talk about? And, ugh. So we complain or we can do the same thing without grumbling. Now, what have you complained about? When it comes to hospitality, it takes too much time, it makes a mess, 
been working in the kitchen all day, got to clean up, it's expensive. What else? They stay too long. I just thought of that one. That's why, hey, a little tip. Just put your lights on timers. It's so cool. <laughs> it's the greatest thing. <laughs> we, we, had, uh, we had some friends that we were entertaining once. And the guy told me a story. He said that you know, his wife would just get up and she'd go, Okay, honey, let's go to bed so these good people could go home. You know, settle right to the point. It's kind of crazy sometimes because like when we were dealing with the Rams and it was the off-season, they didn't have anywhere to go, nothing to do. They'd be sitting there all night long going, hey, like, you got to work in the morning? Yeah, do you? Well, no. Okay. So I've called them since. Most of those guys are retired. I have called them. And I said, like, hey, we're going to come over about 1 in the morning. What are you going to be doing? I mean, what am I going to be doing? I'm sleeping, man. i got to go to work in the morning. Oh, poor baby. Remember all those years you sat on the couch and you wouldn't leave till the timers went off? <laughs> Be hospitable toward one another without grumbling. And you know what's amazing? Hospitality is never a problem when we have our priorities straight. Matthew 25, read it sometime. It's a wonderful story of men and women who are meeting the needs of those around them. And Jesus said, you know, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And these people, in whom hospitality became a way of life, said this. When? When did we do all these things? They were so oblivious to the fact that hospitality had become a way of life that they didn't even recognize what they were doing was a sacrifice pleasing in the sight of God. And he said, when you did it to the least of my brother, you did it unto me. I've had people say to us, man, you know what, your house, there's always somebody at your house. And it has become such a way of life that I don't even know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. And what was weird was when Linda was out of town, and this goes to show you something, I'm not sure what this means, but when Linda was out of town, nobody called our house. I'm sure they thought I was busy studying. <laughs> but it's like, nobody called. I come in from the office, run over to the phone. Nothing blinking. <laughs> nobody. It's like, now she's home and the kids are home, man. The phone will be ringing off the hook. There'll be messages and stuff going on again. And I was like, and I know you all thought I was out of town, so I don't take it personal. <laughs> but it could be hospitality. My wife makes people feel like they belong at our house. We've had people live with us for months. We had the guy who showed up and knocked on the door. I told you the story with two suitcases in his hand who I just got a call about five hours earlier from a friend, Jeff Kemp, who was in San Francisco at the time saying, hey, we got a buddy, uh, and it wasn't even his buddy, it was a friend of a friend who's coming to Southern California to coach at Chapman University. We told him about you, and he's going to be calling, looking for a place to stay, that you can help him find a place to stay, get him plugged into church, blah, 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 blah. The guy knocks on our door like maybe two minutes after the phone hangs up, and he's standing there with two suitcases going like this. Man, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I'm saying, what can't you believe? I can't believe that you just let a stranger move in with you till I get settled. <laughs> And Linda's in the other of the room, right? And I come walking in like this. She knows the routine. She walks right upstairs. The kids go with her. They get the linen out, the sheets out. They get the guest bedroom all made up. It's all set, made up. It's ready to go. Four months later, he moves out. <laughs> hey, what? Hey. Two years later, met a gal here at this church, and I did their wedding down in San Clemente. Is that cool? God is so amazing. You know, Abraham entertained the Lord Jesus Christ himself with two angels when he opened his tent up and said, come on in, I want to give you something to eat. He didn't know who he was. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that he didn't even know. He didn't even know he was entertaining God. When you do it to the least of my brethren, you do it unto me. When was the last time you opened your home to, hey, how about a traveling college choir? How about foreign exchange students? I've told you a few stories about that. That's, you know, I'll tell you what, it makes an impression on your kids, too. Especially when you kick them out of their room. 
<laughs> it's kind of like, hey, we're servants of God. Give up your bed. <laughs> so you might have been careful on all of that. But I was like, but we've had that. I mean, we've had guys that got traded from one team to the next in the area. They don't know anybody else. And they call you on the phone and say, can you pick me up at the airport? Uh, can I stay with you till I get set? Can I get organized? Whatever. A uh, guy got cut, traded, whatever, didn't have a place to live and lived with us. I mean, that, that's life. For the Christian, that's our life. That's what we're to be doing in that stretch of duration in which things happen called time that's an effective use of the time that God gives us. We're to be hospitable to one another. And you know what? And without grumbling. Love it. And you know how you develop a love for people? You've got to try it first. That's the first step. And number four, what are we supposed to be doing until Jesus comes back? We keep serving one another. Man, is this good stuff or what? We keep serving one another. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Let me just tell you the truth here. According to the Bible, when a person gives his life to Jesus Christ and believes in him for the forgiveness of their sin and becomes a child of God, the Holy Spirit of God administers to that person, gives that person a gift, a spiritual gift. It's almost like God's wedding present or a present to a person who becomes a believer and says, I want to give you this gift since now you are one of my children. And that gift is a spiritual gift given by the Spirit of God and He gives to whom He wishes as He wishes and He gives all of us at least one, if not more, gifts. And so we need to recognize and understand something here. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God has given you a spiritual gift for the purpose of building up God's people here on earth. To serve others. In Ephesians 4, read it for yourself. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 through 30. Read it for yourself. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Read it for yourself. It is a list of spiritual gifts that God gives each one of us as He chooses to give those. The purpose of that gift is not to selfishly hoard that gift, but it's to share that gift with others. He says, if you've received that gift, what you have, whatever you received, serve others. Faithfully be good stewards and administer that gift for the benefit of others. Use it to build others up. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. There it is. Different gifts, different people get different gifts by God. It says, if anyone speaks, he's now speaking of speaking gifts. He said he should do it in a way or as one speaking the very words of God. Isn't that interesting? One of the things that God says to me is, Chuck, if I've given you the speaking gift to teach, I want you to faithfully preach the word of God. Not your opinions, not your philosophies, nothing else but the word of God. Boy, you know what's sad? Can you imagine what we're trying to do to get people to come to churches in our country? We're trying to do everything to get them there except the only thing that will make any difference once they are there. And that is when we preach the Word of God, the Word of God goes out, doesn't come back empty, and it changes the hearts of men and women. We are so stupid. We're trying to get people into church by entertaining them. We're trying to get people into church by not letting them use their Bibles. We're trying to get people into church by giving them song and dance and some other wahoo thing. And you know what? And all that's well and good in its proper place and in a proper context, but it should never replace the reason people come to church is to hear something about God. Anybody you invite to church is understanding they're coming because they're going to hear something about God. And if you preach the Word of God, they're going to hear about God. And if you teach truth, it's going to penetrate their hearts and change their hearts to the point where they may even trust in that God. But if you bring them to a show, the next time they'll take you to a movie. And then you'll take them to the Orange County Performing Arts Center. And then they'll take you to a baseball game. Because they'll think that that's what you're doing. I want people that come here to walk away having heard about God. How about that? That's all. So I will make this promise to you. Anytime you invite a friend that you want to hear about God and you want us to open our Bibles and teach truth, I'll guarantee you, you bring them any week that I teach because that's all I'm going to be doing. That's it. 
I have nothing else to offer. Because if God's given me a gift to speak and to teach, the only thing he wants me to do with it is speak the words of God. That's it. Now, I get into tr- you know when I get in trouble? I always get in trouble when I tell a joke. Always. Mark it down. When I tell a joke or tell a story or inject something from my own personal life is when I always cross the line and get in trouble. But that's who I am. That's who Peter was. So, <laughs> so if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Or you're going to have to really stretch out and love me like I am. And that's the only time I get in trouble. I never get in trouble when I just teach the truth of the Word of God. Never do. I'm always on solid ground. And I, if you don't like what God says, I don't really care because I'm just a Western Union messenger, man. I, it's not my message. I had somebody here a couple weeks ago and said, you know what? Well, I enjoyed the class, but I don't like what was said. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Well, I don't believe that you have to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I believe there's a whole bunch of ways to get to heaven. And you know what? I don't mind hearing that. Because they walked out hearing that the only way that a person can get to heaven is by trusting in Jesus Christ. That is the words of God. See what I'm saying? That's good stuff. Now, oh, you know what? I need to go. I got somewhere to be. Um, <laughs> you're all thinking the same thing. Just you were thinking of it. You were thinking, hey, 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 hey. Don't be leading some insurrection now. Hey, but you know what, though? You know, I love you. Um, I got somewhere to go. You were thinking that 20 minutes ago. I got somewhere to go. Um, All right, let's put it all together. What are we supposed to be doing in the time we have left? Number one, use good judgment. Stay calm. And you know what? And pray. And pray. Be fervent in your love for one another. Reach out, stretch out to people that, frankly, you know what? At this point, you don't even like seeing them around here. But I want you to pray that God will just take that bitterness and anger out of your heart. And I want you to love them. And I want kindred fellowship to be a place of love and understanding. A place where people can come and feel like, you know what, I feel like I'm home. If it's a good house. <laughs> you know, if you had a bad home now, I don't want you to feel that way. Be hospitable. Open up your homes. Hey, let some junior high kids come in. Let some high school kids come in. Let some college kids come in. Not just your own. Let a choir that's in the area that needs housing come in. Let some foreign exchange students live with you for a while so that you can demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ for strangers. Serve one another. Use the gift that God's given you. And you know what's so awesome about this? And you know why we do all these things while we await the coming of Jesus Christ? If we're busy doing these things, this is what the Bible says. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. See ya.